Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. We're in our series from Majesty to Manger, and uh, we're heading uh, towards Christmas, and uh, that's coming in two days. Last week, we saw the incredible plan that God the Son, the pre-incarnate one, stepped down. Right? It says that he emptied himself. Oh, that's loud. And uh, we would understand it as he humbled himself. Another way to say it is that he gave up his privileges. But rarely are we able to connect on an emotional level and uh, think about what it must have felt like for Jesus to have that happen to him. To have those things taken away and stripped away. So uh, imagine today after the service that you go outside and someone uh, looks at you and says, Hey, give me your car keys. And so you willingly hand over the keys to your car, give it to them, and then you watch them drive away in your car. Uh, Now with no car, you must walk home or Uber or Lyft, right? Whatever. And upon arriving at home, you see people carrying out all the positions of your home and loading it into a huge furniture truck. Asking some questions, you learn that your stuff will no longer be necessary. Entering into the echo chamber of your house, you're trying to assess the situation, and then you hear a knock on the door. A person says that the home is now no longer yours to occupy and that you must leave. Walking down the sidewalk, you're rather shaken, but still you have one ace up your sleeve. Your wallet. Right? You still have your money. You still have your credit cards. You still have your savings. So as you're walking down the sidewalk, right at that moment, uh, another car pulls up and two men get out. And they take not only your wallet, but your phone. Yeah, I hear the groans. Okay, now we're getting down to bare knuckles. Now you're homeless. If that wasn't enough, another car approaches and you're told to get in. Whereupon you're taken to the airport and flown to another state. Which one you're not told, but you have to figure it out from the signage that you can read. Escorted out of the airport, you're now on your own and you must make it from there. This might, in some small way, approximate what it felt like for Jesus to leave his royal privileges and come down here to join us. It says that he had to set that aside. The creator of the universe's entrance was in a small stable in a little village outside of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You know, when someone does something for you, there are two primary testing points that we take into consideration as we weigh the value of that action. We're all going to be doing this in the next two days. Right? We're all going to be sitting down receiving gifts from each other. So uh, think, think through this with me. The first thing that we're going to think about, the first test or measurement, is what they've done. This is usually self-evident as we can physically see the act or the present that they've given us. So we can connect with that. But equally important, and sometimes even more important than the actual act, is the why they have done what they've done. We call that motive. What's behind the giving of the gift? 
the heart behind the action. And as we know in our mixed-up world, things can go in all kinds, right? Just because somebody gives you something doesn't mean the motive's good, right? We live in kind of a broken world. Good actions can have bad motives behind them, and good motives can sometimes result in bad actions. It's just a, a mess that we get into sometimes. So the question on the table this morning, though, is when we look at Jesus, we know why He came. The question is, what was the motive behind His coming? So initially you would suspect, you know, if you're thinking about God, you would infer from what you think about in terms of rulers or kings, is that God, like every other king or ruler who's ever come on the planet uh, that has existed, is going to come and the goal is or motive is to impose His will that was loud, on his people, whether they want him to eat or not, or whether they want him to come or not. But here's where we find God doing something very surprising. And the intent, and we find out that the intent and goal of his coming is different than what we would have expected from a ruler. God becomes vulnerable. God comes as a baby. And in doing this, we find something about the heart and nature of God in the process. The first thing that we find out is that He's humble. This is not what you would think of when you think of God. You know, when you think of God, you would think of power, you would think of majesty, you would think of dominion, you would think of might, you would think of ruling. Uh, as our parents used to say, because I said so. Right? The idea that God at His core is humble is very surprising and absolutely critical information because it informs me of the type of person that He is, that God is approachable. And for all His great power, reasonable. I can approach Him. I can talk to Him. I can dialogue with Him. That is beyond expectations. I, I can converse with Him. I can reach out to Him. We would call it prayer. Not just is the access surprising, but the heart attitude behind that is even more surprising. For if humility is surprising, the next character quality we encounter is astonishing. What's more surprising than humility is that we find out that God is loving. John, in his summation of God's purpose for doing all this and explaining his motive, the why behind his action, so famously says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That phrase, for God so loved. You know, if you thought about coming and you thought about why God came, There's probably a lot of words you would have put in there, right? Love probably wouldn't have been one of them. For God so loved, it means that He cared. It's it's astounding. It tells us about His motive. It tells us about the why He's doing what He's doing. The why He came. And what's so astounding is He didn't come to dominate us. That's what you would expect a king or a ruler to do. Rather, He came to rescue us. And why does He want to rescue us? Because because He loves us. 
He loves you. He loves me. And He loves those who are outside these walls this morning. If you're here this morning for the first time in a long time, decided to attend church because it's that time of year, welcome. We're glad to have you. Glad you did that. Then hear this. He, God, loves you. That's what's behind all His actions. That's what's behind the message. That's what's behind all that you hear. The love of God is broadcast through the Scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments. And the context of these proclamations is sometimes somewhat surprising. Let me pull one that uh, is like that from Lamentations. And it reads like this. It's, it's really pleasant on Christmas. It says, Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul is continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Let me give you the setting for this. The setting for this is Jerusalem. The writer is Jeremiah. And he has just watched Jerusalem be pulverized and destroyed. He's watched about 1.3 million of his countrymen killed. He's watched about another 150,000 to 300,000 taken and dragged off into captivity. And nothing but smoke and ashes is left. And he says, it felt like wormwood and gall. That's a very apt description. Yet, he says, and yet in spite of that, I have hope. What could possibly give a person hope when everything they're looking at that they knew that was important to them has been destroyed? And Lamentations, Jeremiah gives us this answer. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases in spite of all that just happened, all that just went wrong. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in Him. There's a lot of other places. Psalm 136, if you read that psalm, there's a a phrase that's read about God, and then it says, um, His steadfast love endures forever. And it repeats that phrase 26 times. So da-da-da-da-da, His steadfast love endures forever. Da-da-da-da-da, His steadfast love endures forever. If you haven't ever checked that psalm out, go and look at that. And it's trying to pound home the fact that God's steadfast love, in spite of circumstances, endures forever. Uh, Just a brief survey in the Psalms. Look at how this comes across in Psalms 5-7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. In other words, I'm going to get in because you love me. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. Psalm 6-4. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. I'm going to light up like a Christmas tree. Psalm 13, 5, 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 17, 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And you can, I just pulled a small sampling. You go over and over and over. It's pounded home that in spite of 
all the circumstances and history that Israel went through, God's steadfast love endures forever. You can find this theme prominently displayed in the New Testament as well. Okay? But God, Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. That could be read, but God being generous in mercy. Being abundant in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Second Thessalonians says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Right? We sing that song. What's that song called? Amazing Grace. Right? That's why we sing that song. 1 John 4.10 tells us something very important. In this is love, not that we've loved God. It says most of us didn't start out chasing God because we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins, a covering, an umbrella for our sins. And then 1 John 4.9 sums, sums it up the best. We love because He first loved us. In other words, if we have love in our hearts and we have capacity for that and towards God, it's there in the first place because God loved us first. He showed us how to do it. He spoke into our hearts what it should look like. And I don't know about you, but I've become much better at loving over the years as I've gotten to know God better. It makes more sense to me. Why is this all so important? Now that's a lot of verses. That's a lot of head stuff, right? You can just go down, okay, click, click, click. We've done that. But why this is so important is because this tells us that what God did wasn't just a tactical move. You know what I mean by being tactical? We live in kind of a tactical culture, right? Who's got the best business plan? Who's got the best earnings rating? Who's got the best uh, you know, uh, financial strategy? Who's got, who gets there first? Who gets there fastest, right? We live in kind of that. Who's got the better mousetrap kind of culture, right? And... Tactical just means that something's characterized by well-planned procedures and then skillful execution of those goals. And that's important. That's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't tell you anything about the heart of the person doing that. It tells you what they're doing. It tells you how they're doing it. But it doesn't tell you about the heart behind it. Why this is so important is that it tells us it's not just a set of lists or objectives that God has laid out to accomplish. Certainly, there's incredible strategy on God's part to pull this all off. But it wasn't just strategy. It was heartfelt. It was motivated by love. It says He came to rescue us because He loved us. In other words, love was the source of the strategy or the tactic, not the other way around. Remember last week when we covered the plan and We quoted from Psalm 40. Let's look at that again. It says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, Your wondrous deeds and Your thoughts towards us. None can compare with You. And I will proclaim and tell of them, and yet they are more than can be told. David was stunned when he realized God's plans for him. And he said, You know, I can't even tell the half of it. I kind of got a window on some of it. And the part I can see is stunning. And that's not even the whole picture. 
What's it going to like, look like when the whole picture shows up? And church, remember, God has not played all His cards. We do not have the whole picture yet. And when it rolls out, what Scripture says, we're going to go, wow. We're just going to, wow. Right? And we are just going to be blown away. So it wasn't just strategy. What changed the psalmist, or here the psalmist is King David, what changed his heart here wasn't personal knowledge that God had a plan. Uh, David was a warrior king, right? He was a general in armies. He knew all about plans and tactics. What changed David was God's thoughts that were towards him. And when David thought about God's heart towards him, he was overcome with the knowledge that God loved him. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David was a man that went after God's heart. Right? And when he ran into that heart, he ran into the love that was behind that heart. What I'm suggesting this morning is love changes us. It softens us. Makes us vulnerable. Makes us hopeful. Makes us radiant. Uh, those of you who are married this morning, go back to your wedding day. Zeb, Aubrey, that won't be too hard. right? Go back to your wedding day. Do you remember the countenance of your spouse on your wedding day? Remember the radiance that was involved with that day? It says that God's love lights our countenances up like that. We are to be a radiant people. Why often aren't we? Because Satan messes with us and steals that radiance away and uh, we become dull, just like other people. But love can change us. And so instead of going after our heads this morning, let me, let me go after our hearts. Let me, let me tell a story. All right. Uh, this story, uh, you can find it in different forms. Uh, you can find an African form of it. But the original story that I'm aware of comes out of the Polynesian islands, uh, and it is the story of a, a girl named Sarita. Sarita was the daughter of one of the tribal chiefs, but she was not a beautiful girl. To say that she looked ordinary would be being generous. Pinched shoulders, bowed head, skimping steps, made her often look like she was a night creature looking for shelter from something that she was terribly afraid of. When it came time for marriage, many of the other girls on the islands were picked well ahead of her. The practice of that time is that if a young man wished to take the daughter of a father in marriage, he had to bring a dowry. Now, that's not we're not very familiar with that in American culture. And uh, often these kind of stories took place back in an agricultural culture. And so we're even less familiar with that. And uh, But there would be certain amount bartered for the daughter as a, a, a bridal price. And the, the young man and the father would negotiate the price based on the value, the status, or the beauty of the girl. And often the commodity or the currency which, which the deal was transacted was cows. Right Now, that would make no sense to us. I mean, if a cow showed up on your lawn this morning, you know, like what do we do with that? And who cleans it up? And, you know, that sort of stuff. But uh, cows in an agriculture or farming culture are very practical. They're very useful. They create all kinds of milk. You can make butter and cheese and all kinds of stuff. And uh, you can 
eat them, and there's all kinds of things that go with that. So in agricultural cultures, cows hold very high status. And so cows were often the currency which with the deal was negotiated. Beautiful, talented girls could command as many as five cows. Uh, others two or three. Others one. In some cases, uh, pigeons or food would be offered for those who were poor. For Sarita, there had been no offers. Her father was worried and heartbroken for her. Uh, as time continued to pass, he knew what he was looking at. And one day, through the island fishing lanes and through the grapevine, word came that a prince from one of the big islands was coming to visit their little island. This was big news, for the prince was known for fairness and bravery, and no one doubted that he would one day be the leader of their people. When he arrived at the island, all the people rushed to the beach and applauded and greeted him and welcomed. And they were also curiously, curious and intensely interested in what business was behind his visit. For no one, not even the chiefs, knew why he had come. Many of the island girls dressed in their finest because it was well known that the prince had not yet married. And there was much speculation as to what the dowry would be for the family of the girl that the prince would choose. When the prince landed, he greeted the people and was welcomed by them, and then he let it wish to be known that he wanted to a visit with Sarita's father. Taken to their home, he entered in, and he began to ask for his daughter Sarita's hand in marriage and the dowry price that could be expected. People were shocked when the word got out. What? Sarita? Why, he could have the pick of any of the most beautiful girls on the island. Sarita, this had to be a joke. Or worse, a mistake. Obviously, he must have gone to the wrong house. Surely the prince must have been misinformed. But what happened next shocked the village even more was the dowry price. Ten cows. No girl on any of the islands, no matter how beautiful, had ever commanded that price. And for Sarita, her father was dumbfounded. He loved his daughter. He, he wished the absolute best for her, but he knew her chances at a good marriage were poor at best. And now he's facing this kind of offer. He was, he was also afraid maybe there'd been a mistake and the prince was asking for the wrong girl. Too terrified to ask, he, he brought his daughter out. His daughter, on taking one look at the prince, shrunk to her absolute smallest and would have disappeared into the, uh, the ground if there had been a hole big enough for her to crawl into. And the prince looked gently at her and felt great love for her and called out, Sarita, look at me. She barely peeked above the horizon of her eyelids. Sarita, Sarita, look at me. Will you come with me and be my wife? 
only the slightest nod that could barely even be detected by her father gave away the answer. And with that, they were off back to the prince's island. One year passed and they returned so that Sarita could visit her father and family again. And again, the whole island turned out for the reception. And when the boat landed, there was an audible gasp from the crowd. For alongside the prince was a beautiful, glowing wife. So changed was she that people barely realized that it was their own Sarita. Could it be? She had become gorgeous because in the eyes of her husband, she was gorgeous. She was well-loved and it showed. No longer pinched or bowed or shuffling. She now stood straight and regal and elegant and confident. Her face glowed, her eyes shined, and she was the envy of all who saw her. The prince had been able to see what others had not, and he had offered the highest value for what he could see, ten cows. Some had laughed and thought that he had made a great mistake. How foolish he had been to throw so much at so little. But now they realized it was they who had missed, not the prince. And Sarita, she was just grateful that she had enough courage to nod her head. Now I know this is but a poor illustration in comparison for what Jesus did for us by coming at Christmas. But if you think about it, there's some incredible parallels in this story. Many of us could barely lift up and look at our eyes when Jesus called us and said, by name, look at me. Look at me. We couldn't do it because we knew we were dirty. We knew we were unloved. We knew we were disqualified. But don't miss the point. The point is that love changes us. When a woman is well loved, it's reflected. You can see it on their countenance. And it's so it happened with Sarita. So it happens to us. We change. Our countenance changes when we remember, when we think about that God's love is towards us that His thoughts are towards us, that He loves us. There's a little phrase in Psalm 34 that I often pray for us as a church. And it's this, Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. There's that old hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What's missing in that little phrase is what happens to us when we look at the countenance of Jesus. Because when we look at the countenance of Jesus, we change. We light up. But what happens? Why do we need to remember this? Why does this need to be brought back home? Well, because things happen. Life's not easy. Matter of fact, you might be sitting there right now feeling guilty and going, man, I'm not radiant. I'm sour. I'm hoping nobody's looking. They might even be able to tell it from the back of my head. 
Why? Because there's troubles. There's troubles. If you've been at this game any length of time, you run into troubles. And there's worries. I just read a study that says the number one affliction in our culture right now is anxiety. That over 64% of the culture suffers with moderate to severe anxiety and the rest suffer with moderate, mild amounts of anxiety. And we have all kinds of prescription drugs that we can take to try and modify that. Uh, anxiety can get to the place where it's so paralyzing you can't function anymore. You can't even get out of your house. It's hard to be radiant when you're riddled with anxiety. There's obstacles. Life turned out to be more difficult than we thought. The hurdles were bigger, harder. We, we couldn't clear them the, the way we thought we were going to be able to. What has affected everybody else in history has taken us out too. Or maybe you're older and you can't clear the hurdles the way you used to. And you're thinking, man, I, I used to be able to do that with ease. What, what's wrong with me? I can't do that anymore. And it's become hard. And if those three weren't enough, there's sorrows. If you've been at life any length of time, you learn to cry. All that happens is not good. And many of us have great sorrow in our heart for people that we love. Uh, many of us have great sorrow for people we've lost. Many of us have great sorrow over what's happening in our country right now today. And it's hard to be encouraged when day after day and you watch the set, all that comes across is bad news. It's hard to be encouraged and remember that God wins in the end. What do we need to remember in spite of it all? What we need to remember is that we're deeply loved and cherished by Jesus. That God's heart is towards us. And because of that, we can be radiant. Maybe the best part about Christmas is that it's a reminder of how deeply loved and God's basically saying, hey, stop, take a pause for a minute and remember. Uh, you know, we're, we're reading through the Bible and that can be a, a tactical thing in that I've punched through and knocked out the chapters. But that's not the goal behind it. The goal behind it is to spend time with Him and get into God's mind. And when you start to think like God, you, you start to see it His way. And when you start to see it His way, you start to realize how He loves you. And when you start to realize how He loves you and others, you can look at it differently. It buoys you. It gives you, as Jeremiah said, hope in spite of everything crashing around. You have hope because why? You know from reading through the Word, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That the steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. Uh, we were at uh, our Christmas uh, prayer group party last night. and it, It's a lot of fun. Um, there's five couples of us and we have a great time together. And, um, and we've done it for a long time, uh, 15 years. And when we started, uh, all our kids were little, tiny rugrats running around, right? And it was pretty easy to fit everybody in the room and, and we would have... Uh, White elephant, we've been doing a white elephant exchange and it gets more interesting and hilarious every year that we do it. And, uh, and we've gotten quite sophisticated at our stealing. And, um, and, you know, it's just fun. And I was sitting yesterday just watching the room and, and I'd walk, there's a whole crowd in the, this living room. Then I'd walk into the kitchen, here's another whole crowd and they're all taller than me. Hi, Mitch. You know, and that kind of thing. And, 
And then I walk into another room. There's another group and all talking. And towards the end of the party, I stopped everybody. I said, hey, just stop for a minute. I want you to think about something. I said to the kids, well, they're not kids anymore. They're adults, right? But I said, hey, kids, you remember when we first started this? Do you remember how little you used to be? And they're all like, right and running around i said you know we are very fortunate we are very blessed as families that everybody everybody was there everybody could come back and be together again it was just really special and i said you know we need to really appreciate that because uh you know that may not always be true that might not always happen but i said the second thing is i said as as we're doing this Let's also be really grateful for what the Lord's done for us as families. Let's not forget Him. Christmas is about what Jesus did for us. And as we're standing here in this house, we can look around and have incredible gratefulness, not just for each other, but also for Him. And I just felt compelled to say that. Because I realize all our kids now are young adults, and it's their turn to grab the baton. It's their turn to own it. It's their turn to take the pass and be passionate about God's love and about passion that on I'm going, boy, God, uh, grab our kids, grab our young adults in our church, grab them and make them as passionate as we've been about it. Make them more passionate than us and take it farther. Why? Because more people need to know about the love of the Lord. Those who look to Him are radiant. Don't look to your gifts this week. Don't look to the football games this week to make you radiant. Look to the King who left everything for you because He loves you and His heart is towards you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Come on, Esther and gang. and We're going to sing a, a song that's just a classic and uh, really speaks of God's steadfast love that endures forever. I know you're busy. And the reason I know you're busy is I'm busy. And I know you're running 800 miles an hour. Right? Because half of you have showed up at my house this week. Okay? And it's been a lot of fun. But this is a great time to slow down and just pause and think about the love for God so loved. That's the motive. He had a plan. But that's the motive behind the plan. Would you stand? And let's worship together.